welcome to today's episode of The Square. I'm Brandon Carmichael, and as you can tell, we're in a little bit different setting than we normally are. I'm here with Francis Walker. Francis, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Brandon. And we are in the London office, so we're, we're actually here for a project, but we brought a few cameras and had the opportunity to sit down with Francis, who I've known for four or five years, mm -hmm. and um, didn't want to miss the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him um, for several reasons, but not the least of which is Francis did us the great honor of inviting us into your home studio and kind of walking us through a little bit of your creative process, which I'm really excited about. So Francis, tell me a little bit about what it is that you do um, for Corgan and then how you got on the architecture road. Uh, so, um, well, I joined Corgan in Hong Kong um, when we were uh, looking to grow the business in Asia. Um, from success that uh, the aviation team had had and the data center team in Beijing. I remember seeing a picture of your office. Yeah, my, it was a plywood desk. my office was, was, was fairly snug. When we closed that office, it was, it was quite straightforward. So, uh, yeah, so in 2018, uh, we started turning the focus to London through some opportunities we had. And I think also it felt like a better fit for the business. Um, uh, I think clients are, in the US, the idea of a London office resonates more. Um, but also to have a good spread, because we've got Singapore and London now, so um, we've got a good time zone spread, we've got good sort of footprint uh, in different parts of the world, which is important. So we set up the office 2019, and we started um, doing some really interesting work uh, with Virgin Atlantic. Uh, and that was when Heathrow expansion was a, was a big feature of the sort of um, architectural landscape here. Um, and that went really well until the end of 2019. 2020 looked very positive. We did some big competitions like NEOM that we did with you guys. And, and then COVID hit. <laughs> then COVID hit, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the last couple of years has been quite difficult to get back out and yeah. and, and we were also on the, the cusp of that big hey we're here push yeah you know because we had the the confidence of good relationships um, with Heathrow with Virgin Atlantic with with other few other um, a few other clients and then it all went into reverse because a lot of these uh, a lot of these companies had to let a lot of people go and they had to really sort of tuck in yeah uh, keep the lights on for a couple of years because the aviation sector here really suffered yeah. and took a lot longer to show signs of recovery. So um, probably the timing of you guys coming over is fortuitous because it kind of feels like... Things are starting to ramp back up. Things are ramping up. There's, there's, there's conversations that are, you know, that are starting to happen again about projects and about capacity and, and what we projected slash predicted would happen was that there was going to be sort of a backwash of projects and pent up demand and there was going to be uh, issues on the other side with with um, a lot of things needing to happen and, and clients still trying to figure out how to do it, having lost a lot of people. And it's been in the news um, that the problems that airlines are having with Easter traffic because everyone wants to get out at Easter, you know. They're done being pent they're up. Done. There's a long winter and uh, they're keen. Yeah. So, director of the London office, but there's a whole journey 
of how you got to be here. Tell me a little bit about how you, you grew up in Glasgow. How did you decide that you, architecture is what you wanted to, to go into? Well, when, you know, I, I actually grew up in a small town about 30 miles from Glasgow, which doesn't sound like a great distance, but when you consider that coast to coast in Scotland is, is less than 80 miles or maybe touching 80 miles, Glasgow was the, that was the kind of gleaming city to, to the east yeah. when I was growing up. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a country boy in my, in my kind of roots, um, which I'm proud of. Uh, how did I get into architecture? Well, I mean, it, it was really the interest in art and being kind of interested in that. And I was fortunate enough that I had a friend at school who was a few years ahead of me that went and studied architecture. And just, you know, the influence of, of people around you, you know, and especially the, pe the influence of people around you in a small town, it tends, they, it tends to pop more because there's just less, there's, less, there's, <laughs> there's less places you can go and, and get inspired yeah. uh, by people. Certainly where I grew up was very, you know, working class and, and, uh, and that was kind of life, you know. So the idea of going to university and things like that was, I'm definitely the first generation where a lot of people went to university. Um, it, was, it was pretty rare up until quite recently um, that people did that. Usually they would go into the trades, they'd do apprenticeships, it was very traditional. So that was kind of different. So, so part of it was that. The, the reasons for architecture, I have to be honest, were, were a little bit vague. I wasn't someone who always wanted to be an architect. Um, and it's something that when I went to study it, took me a couple of years to, to get my head around it. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed it. Um, and it's been the same, I think, in my career, because I've moved around a lot. So I'm, I'm a bit of a mongrel in architecture. I've worked in different sectors according to where I've found myself. Right. You know, so I've spent a lot of time in Asia, I've spent time in the US, different parts of the UK, um, and you know, just kind of falling into um, whatever sector was busy there, you know, you're looking for a job. And that, that was kind of it, it was, it was um, working to live. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the sort of career just kind of was getting dragged along behind. <laughs> so, but that's been, that's been it for me, it's been opportunistic rather than um, some big plan, you know. So even before you, you know, knew that architecture was where you wanted to go, there was art and there was music. And um, so let's, well, we're gonna transition now into uh, you taking us through your, your workshop in never before seen anywhere else in the world. It's a, it's a very exclusive, <laughs> very, exclusive <laughs> very exclusive trip. studio. Um, and a, a couple of caveats, um, we're, we were in the middle of, a, of a, a project as we speak, but also Francis, in perfect opportune timing, is moving in two days. The entire house, uh, the wife, the three kids. They're all going. <laughs> and um, still made time for us to go and, and, and work through the studio. So thank you for letting us do that. And here's what that looked like.
So when we first came in, we talked very briefly about the painting area, but oh yeah, I'm I'm curious because actually not very much like your music, your paintings. The first thing I thought of when I saw them was there's a ton of layers. There's a lot of layers. Mm. Tell me a little bit about why painting is important to you. Oh, I've just I've just done it for for so long that it's not really something that's optional. Um, but it's an interesting point. Uh, so with the music and, and with the painting, um, and I've got a, I've got a tendency to be glib, but I think if I was talking um, seriously um, about the music and the paintings, it is about layering, and it's about layering simple things um, and finding ways to organise them uh, so that they don't have a rigid relationship. Um, and some of the, the records that I'll share, one in particular, um, that idea of, of making music or making images through simple repetitions offset against other simple re repetitions and then modulating those is really, that's, that, that's the process, right? It's, mm. it's, a, it's a simple thing to explain and I guess what I like about it is that you get complexity out of the repetition of simple things. Um, so maybe it's the illusion of complexity or maybe that's what complexity is. I, I don't really care. Um, but that's how the, 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 there's always a point, there's, there's, a pro, there's an arc to the process that I recognize now, which is a upside of doing something for a long time, um, you, that you forget your technique, right? That the purpose of technique is to forget the technique. Um, so, so the, and just I mean, so at that point, it just becomes so second nature. You don't, you're you're able to give yourself to something a little bit deeper. So you trust yourself, mm. um, and and the reason I say that is very very specific. There's a point in the paintings. Everyone, everyone doesn't matter where um, I'm convinced it's a disaster, <laughs> and and I've come to rely on that as the sign, the signal to keep going. Because that that could be pretty scary if you don't know it's coming and in fact it's probably part of what plays into your fear as an artist right yeah i mean it is it's it, you can either you can either let it stop you or you can push through it yeah and i've come to <laughs> oh this looks terrible good right <laughs> we're, we're going somewhere is it almost where you have to hit that spot before you'll get to something that you are happy with I think the I think the reason is maybe specifically to do with the aesthetics. Thinking about it, because if if you look at the paintings, right, a lot of it is about what you remove, mm. and you remove it at the end. So it's so it's like you know throw it all on. Sometimes there's an idea about what it's going to be, but but usually that idea sort of emerges at a given point. You go, oh, that looks interesting, and so that starts to dictate. Some of these paintings here are specific to to a project that that, that we're working on together, so they're, they're they're a bit different. But there's definitely a point at which you start to take stuff away to make the image. So when I, I read about Japanese art, that's the art subtraction mm -hmm. to create the image. I kind of like that because I guess I keep my options open till quite late in the process. Um, and you also get an interesting aesthetic because you get the layers. So you make all the layers of color and you make some markings and you do some stuff and then you start to take bits out. So when you actually use the black ink, um, then you start to create the image. The music's similar in that you've got all these bits and pieces and it's about 
using the faders and controlling it in mid time in real time and, and filtering bits out and bringing bits in and trying to avoid congestion you know and then it's about you have something going along that's doing that and you just pull the, the faders down on a certain part of it and the bit that's left you go oh that's the music right okay that's the bit that was always kind of hiding in the in the rubbish tip you know you've sort of pulled treasure out of it and and that's it and then yeah. you can let that run for a while so that's the way the the the, the music and the art have a, a kind of very shared process it reminds me of my college art history class <laughs> and reading how michelangelo uh was quoted as saying that the statue of david was always there he was just revealing it yeah and, and that idea of subtraction is that similar for you where you know once you've kind of piled everything on the final piece is there you're just revealing it by taking some of those things away well i think that's a, that's an interesting um analogy i would say no because i think michelangelo knew david was in there mm. Um, I don't know what's in there. If you are just kind of feeling your way through, how do you know when you've hit it? Do you know? What I, do you know what I would? I would the the one um, artist whose process I, I really identify with. Well, there's a few. I mean, Francis Bacon is is one of them. So Francis Bacon takes his his influences from his life, from from what he looks at, from what he sees. It's scraps of paper, strange magazines or strange other pieces of work and he just would let it all internalize and so he was kind of a synthesizer for these images that mm. were when the images explained to you when you look at one of his paintings you go oh, that's quirky but actually there's a lot of it that's coming out of things that resonated with him and things that he i think probably intuitively said that i want to get some of that you know so if he's got a book of zoo animals or if he's got a book about um, any number of things or if he talks about when he lived in, in uh, Africa and things like that you, then you can start to see these, these paintings or these collages of his life and I like I like that with music you pick up sounds that you like along the way you pick up sounds and you think that sound goes with that sound and it's more about like collage than anything else but the other one that I, that I think that's, that's significant is um, I love the way John Cassavetes made his films and, mm. and there's you know with John Cassavetes, there's usually three or four different versions of his films because for him it was in the editing. So he would shoot his films. He would, I mean, his actors loved him because he didn't have tees for right. them to hit, right? And he didn't light scenes for a he shot. He didn't have to hit a specific cue. Yeah, he, he was a theatre guy, right? Yeah. So, so, he, so, he, so he let his actors go where they wanted and he would end up with all this footage and then it was in the editing and he would change the film dramatically in the editing and shape it after he had all these raw material. So he was basically creating a palette when yeah, he was filming, yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah. then when he got to the editing, he crafted yeah. the story. Yeah, and and I, I like that. I like that process. I respect someone like Hitchcock who would storyboard every frame, and it had to be just so. And we talk about Kubrick a lot. The 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 specific nature of what he did. I I can revere their work, but but that's not the way. That's not the way I do it. It's, it's more, <laughs> yeah, palette. So I'm, I'm curious because this, this happened a little bit on a project we were working on uh, in the Middle East a few years ago, and then more recently, in the last couple of years, a project we were working on together in Africa. And that was the first project that I saw where you start, we, we, we kind of had talked, we started the kickoff of the project process, and you brought these paintings. Hmm. And it was, you kind of introed them, and 
in a way that was like, hey, th I, I was thinking about this project and it inspired these paintings. Mm. And I, I really resonated with that because I think there's a lot of people, um, particularly architects, who may play a music instrument or have other outlets um, and may have an, an indirect relationship with the way that they design, but your relationship is extremely direct. I mean, even I'm thinking about the project, the project that shall not be named currently, um, yeah. that we're working on right now, where yeah, yeah. literally the terminal design came out of a painting. What, did, how did you find that relationship? So with those types of projects, I think it's, it's uh, making the images as sort of a backdrop to meditating about the project. You know, it's, it's you, you sort of, um, you come at it from the side, you mm. know, because I don't think you can, I don't think you can just rely on the brief and you can just rely on planning principles when, you, when you're trying to find an edge or a story, right? We, we talk about stories a lot. So, I mean, the Ethiopia paintings are over there somewhere and, and they were really interesting because I painted four boards in sequence and I think by the time I got to the four, fourth board, I was really getting a, an idea about what the themes of the design were. And that was from looking at the landscape of, of, of Ethiopia and looking at the... Um, Looking at the at the influence of the project, looking at the aspirations for the project, and trying to uh, the images the image is kind of a north point, right? It's a yeah. creative north point, um, and I think it's important because there there isn't there 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 aren't any studios that can't produce great computer graphics. Everyone can do it, right? So what's your what's your edge? Mm. And I think you know I I think. Corgan should look at the people that are in the company and creative positions and say, "How do we get an edge? Yeah. How do we get a How do we get a story?" And I think I think that does happen uh, to a certain extent, but I would encourage it a lot more because there'll be people that are that are there at Corgan that go home and do something, and you want to get that into the project. Right. I remember when we did. Um, a project in London a few years ago and I was in Dallas and I think it was Scott Stoops wrote a piece for it and I said to everyone do something show me something and he wrote a piece so it's not it, it doesn't you have to find your what's your thing connection is. Yeah. to it right? what's your north point for this project that's going to that's going to do it for you and, and if it's if it's on the computer that's great there are I don't mean all computer graphics are the same there's some people that can produce very compelling sure. images but and if that's what it is, that's fine. But you know, we talk about it a lot. We talk about model making, and the workshops a great thing. And and um, but the hands-on, little bit rough models and things like that. It just, I don't know. I, I, I can't tell if I'm just an old-fashioned architect. That that's <laughs> that's the kind of thing I'm drawn to. You know. Yeah. When when did you first have a love for painting? When I was at, at what you call high school, secondary school, um, in the west coast of Scotland, small town. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a it just wasn't a particularly great school, but I had two great art teachers um, that I'm very grateful for that were very influential on me when I was you know 13, 14, 15. They 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 were two complementary characters. One was a real real Scottish painter, a really hard guy. You know, no no messing. <laughs> Another one was. Um, yeah, that was Willie Armstrong, a kind of no messing name. So Willie Armstrong was here. He was a painter, yeah, he was a painter. <laughs> and uh, and then Duncan Watt was a hippie. 
he was an out and out proper hippie, not not like a hayman hippie, like a like a Taoist out there. Uh, and he would and and he would play records in class, which was bizarre, right? <laughs> and he would play Edith Piaf, and he would play. I remember he had a copy of the Rolling Stones "Sticky Fingers" with a big chunk out of it, so you couldn't you couldn't play the first track on both sides. <laughs> but I remember him playing "Sticky Fingers" for me the first time in, in Moonlight Mile, and it's you know, and yeah. this is a, like a small town in the west coast of Scotland in in the mid eighties, you know. And there's this guy, and he worked for Olivetti in the sixties, and he was a very well travelled guy. I don't know what he was doing in Stevenson, but that's where he was. <laughs> and he painted wildlife, and he was, and these these two guys were very opposites. But, yeah. But the but the insights into art and what it could be. Wally Armstrong taught me about Henry Moore. He taught me about you know uh, post war realism and and uh, Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon. And just painters, you know, um, Joan Sutherland uh, and, you know, Duncan what was out there. He was reading poetry in class. And, and to be, I mean, a lot of the kids were like, who is this guy? And I was yeah. just like, this guy's great. In awe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he got me on the path to go to the Mac to study architecture. So I studied architecture actually at Glasgow School of Art. And I used to go into the life drawing classes in the art school. I kind of befriended one of the tutors and... and um, he, I said, can I sit at the back and draw? And he said, yeah, do what you like. And so that's what I did. I sort of snuck into the um, the first year fine artists, or sorry, the second year fine artists. And I would hide at the back and, and I would do life drawing and stuff like that. Um, so the Mac was a great architecture school because it was in the art school and it was part of Glasgow School of Art. And so it's kind of funny because in, in the context of the art school, we were the squares because we were doing architecture <laughs> in the context of the university we yeah. were real weirdos so we we kind of had a foot in both camps you know and and so that stayed that, that just kind of um it seems like a good way to spend your time you know because you you with the music and the painting you spend time doing something and you have something that's that says you were here you know yeah so when did music kind of come into the scene music was when i was at art school so um uh, early 90s again I was about 19 and my brother decided he was getting a guitar and I said well if you're getting one <laughs> <laughs> I need one <laughs> <laughs> and I'd never really thought about it music had always been a little bit very important to me but a, a bit of an enigma in terms of how people made music and what yeah. it was when I went as, as, a, as a corollary to the great art teachers I had at school the music teachers were oh man they were terrible and they played <laughs> these old, painful Scottish dirges and, yeah. that, and that was what they told you music was. Music, songs with titles like The Weaker Kudbury Centipede <laughs> and My Grandfather's Clock and, and other classics. <laughs> and they would play it on these wooden record players and they'd go, oh, just, just get me out of here. And I'd be one of the kids at the back with the glockenspiel and the wind beater. <laughs> So that was music at school. When I went uh, to art school and was was just in a different group of friends and a different yeah. sort of uh, different circle, I got into guitar and through guitar I got into guitar with effects. And then at one point I put the the guitar down and was just playing with effects and playing with other people. And um, is that where the love of synth and all of yeah, that came from? Yeah, you know, abstract soundscapes yeah. just came to the fore. There was a there was sometimes I would touch the jack and trap it in the. Effects chain, and that would be the start of the piece. You know, the guitar oh, that's was cool. Yeah, because the strings were broken or something. <laughs> so, 
so a friend and and, uh, and I, we started working together. We started collaborating, and we started um, doing music for uh, like soundtrack music for for animations and people that were doing stuff at the school. And this was a very new thing. I mean, yeah. we were right on the 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 cutting edge of the of the sort of computer revolution in media. You know, so we were we. Um, finished college and there wasn't a lot of work so we started a business doing music for media and we got um, a grant from uh, the Prince's Trust to buy uh, a Power Mac was it a 9500 yeah. or an 8600 <laughs> or something like that you know way back and that was when we get the sampler with the four megabytes in RAM and thought we were the lords of music <laughs> then four those, whole those megabytes eight seconds yeah. of gloriousness yeah so we so we started doing stuff um, we did a lot of short films and and uh we got some we got some recognition and and maybe if we'd stuck with it in Glasgow it might have gone somewhere but at the start of ninety eight I got the chance to go to Hong Kong and I never came back so so yeah. I, I saw that there was a big world out there and and I sort of started travelling when I started travelling you can't really take all this stuff with you so yeah. so music became that was when I went in the box and then. My interest in it was revived in the early 2000s. I went to Los Angeles and studied film music at UCLA. And I worked in Los Angeles for uh, for a couple of years and was, was sort of doing the LA thing. And that's where I discovered that writing commercial music was not my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, wait a minute. Not your strong suit or you had no desire to do it? Uh, uh, not my strong suit because I had no desire to do it. Fair enough. Um, because... In Los Angeles, in, in music, there's two ways that you can make a career in music. You can either write very competently to the rules with your cymbal swells hitting the hitting the mark, yeah. and and that's great. And I respect. I've got friends that do that, and I respect their ability to to to. Um, they're very professional. They're very on it. They're very they're very good music writers. Very good arrangers. They do the they do producing. Yeah. That's great. It just wasn't for me. The other way you do it is by already being famous for your music. So the best example is probably for me, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who does great film scores because he was in Radiohead. Now that's no disrespect Absolutely. to Johnny Greenwood. He's he he does he did There Will Be Blood. He he done some great scores, um, but he's got his aesthetic there. So when he comes in, people know what they're getting, right? And they don't have to decide if it's good or not because you know. Hollywood doesn't really know what's good or bad. Sure. It's, it's a different kind of assessment. But he comes in and he says, well, Radiohead's good, so we're going to let him do what he wants. Right. Which is wonderful. Plus the good director's going looking for him, right? So right. Paul Thomas Anderson goes looking for Johnny Greenwood. Um, and I was neither of those. I was obscure and making weird music, <laughs> which is <laughs> a really toxic combination. <laughs> but I'm pleased because... Um, I met my wife in LA, yeah. Um, so that was more important. Definitely one of the better decisions you've made in your life. Yeah, yeah. And she is a proper musician. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a musician. I, to me, a musician. She's is a harpist. That, she's a harpist. She's she's a trained harpist, um, singer songwriter. Yeah. And she can read charts, you know. So, to I, I I'm a creative person, maybe an artist who knows how to use these machines to make something that to him is interesting. Right. Uh, and there's a difference there, you know, g- good and bad. Some musicians don't have, they, they, they won't go out in a, le- out in an, a ledge musically because they need the... The verification. They, they, they need the chart. Yeah. They, they'll play the chart and they'll play it beautifully, but they won't go outside the chart. That's yeah. that's the, that's what they do. But you can put anything down in front of them and they'll play mm. it, and that's, 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 that's very cool. 
Tell me about some of these guitars you have here. Okay, so, um, well, actually, you know what, this is all of my guitars. Um, let's just bring this forward a little bit. So, for the last five or six years, I've, I've been, you know, for, for, for 20 years, I had two guitars. And then in Hong Kong, I started, um, I started practicing more. You see, to go back to the effects thing, um, yeah. I used to play through a lot of effects pedals. So I was very good at manipulating effects pedals, um, less so playing the actual instrument. And so about five years ago, I kind of got fed up with that and thought I really need to get better. And I focused on my, my right hand technique. A lot of guitarists, they sort of focus on what's happening here because that's where a lot of the the seeming fireworks happen when you play a guitar and a lot of the, the, you know, the noodlers are here. But if you watch like flamenco guitarists or you watch jazz guitarists, you watch the guys that don't look like they're doing much, but the music that's coming out, it's yeah. just, just blowing your mind. A lot of it's right hand technique, so I practiced on that. So I started building a, a, a collection. Um, so um, these are my acoustics. And um, uh, so what have we got? We've got, um, we've got a resonator, brass bodied resonator. So this is a national guitar from San Luis Obispo. My guitars are a nice mix of British and American. Yeah. So this is an American uh, made guitar and it's a reproduction of the guitars that they built in the late 20s, early 30s, um, using the brass body and a cone resonator to project because it was before you had the electrical amplification. Right, right, right. So when electrical amplification came in, these guitars kind of, kind of went out of fashion and then they came back because um, everything they, comes back eventually. They, they, they stayed niche, <laughs> but it's a it's a really nice it's a really nice guitar with a very distinctive tone. The brass body, I mean, I guess it's it's closer to a banjo, so you can hear that, and it's got that resonance in the yeah. body, right? So, so um, I guess I'll play a, I'll play it with a little bit of slide. Um, so that's your Rai Kuder sound, right? Yeah. So, why, why guitar? I mean, I, you, when the, the way that we think about, or the way we've been talking about with your paintings and the way that you layer things in, guitar seems to be almost, almost purist. Um... And I know you sample them for some of your work, but yeah, yeah. Do you know you know what I mean? I I almost I just it's interesting to me why you would go with something like that versus maybe a keyboard or you know something else that has so much more diversity. Guitar, why guitar? Um, you know, it was kind of there at the start. So so there's one thing about it. Um, you can get yourself wrapped around a guitar, mm -hmm. and I think that the. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the expressiveness of it, you know. I mean, who couldn't just do that all night? Yeah. I think, what, so what I like about the guitar is um, the uh, dynamic range and the emotional range of it is sort of, is, is pretty much limitless, you know, and you can get into a point um, where you're not really focusing on technique. I can get there a couple of times, I need to warm up, it's not gonna happen right now. But the but the um, hands on the instrument, mm. um, increasingly the fact that you don't plug it in, yeah. that, you, that you play it as an acoustic instrument. So this is my classical guitar. 
And you know, it's interesting because it's the same body size as the as the national, but that is, you know, that's brass. You could, you know, if the zombies come, that's the one you're. <laughs> that's, that's the one you're, the one you're wielding. <laughs> um, that that will give them second thoughts. <laughs> but this is very light, so feel the weight of that. Oh yeah, right. You got to kind of hold it down. I mean, these are these are built for the resonance. So the way it works is you, you usually use quite a stiff wood for the sides and the back, right? So this is uh, this is rosewood, and then you've got a very very light, very resonant spruce top. And if you see the way the light's hitting that in yeah. that area, that's called silking. That's that's the sort of three dimensional quality you get in the wood if it's a good piece. Yeah. So. This was made by a guy in Cornwall, Miles Henderson Smith. Um, I just went into the London Guitar Studio and said I want a classical guitar, and this was the best one I could get for the money. And it's yeah, I, I don't I don't need another classical guitar. This is a it's a wonderful. That's the, it. These are made very traditionally. Some people will make an avant garde one. Um, I don't really like that. So what's interesting, I suppose, to your point is I really like cutting edge on this stuff. I like vintage as well. Guitars, I'm very conservative. Mm. Um, so that's my that's my classical. So steel string, brass body, aggressive sound, quite brash. Nylon strings, very light body, very. I mean, the 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 the, the, the classical guitar is probably the the epitome of the guitar for a lot of people because it's as delicate or as as rowdy as you want to get. You know, yeah. it can go all sorts of ways. Um, let's just do the nerdy guitar bit. So this is this is a Loudon, Northern Ireland. It's a small-bodied Loudon. Um, it's a spruce top again. But what I loved about this is, look at that. Oh, look at the back. So that is bog oak, right? That is oak that's laying in a bog. So a, a bog is like a swamp, right? Right. So it's it's oak that lay in a swamp for about five thousand years. They dated it. They pulled it out and. You know, if it sounded like rubbish, they wouldn't have used it to build guitars, but it actually makes for a very nice tone wood. And um, this combination of the spruce and the bog oak is a very nice, clear sound. And even though that's a small guitar, it's probably my loudest guitar. Really? Yeah, because the way the way Loudon build their guitars, they're very low tolerance. They, they, they verge on stiff, but as a result, you get more sound transfer yeah. through them. So in comparison to that, so that's a small body. I guess in a, a Martin guitar it would be called a parlor, and then that's a dreadnought, right? You can see the difference yeah. in the body size. But this is a louder guitar, but this has more bottom end. Mm. This is this is a beautiful, beautiful bottom end. Um, really, really nice tone. The other interesting thing is that they're both spruce tops, right? But that's 1999, that's 2018. Mm. So that's 20 years of of just aging. Aging, yeah. Goes that beautiful sort of mellow brown co color. So these are nice um, complements to each other. So these, you know, so you can see I'm totally justifying having these Absolutely. slightly different guitars. It's a good thing you're married to a to a woman that understands. <laughs> I should say that Marnie bought me that. Oh really? Yeah. So that was a that was a gift that she got me. So when you is is when you come into the studio, whether nope, it's... nope, nope. Oh, save the best to last. This is my arch tool. Look at that. Yeah. That's a bourgeois. That is just a gorgeous object. In flame general. maple. It's it. It is. It really is, and it's a stunning sound. You can see the the. These guitars were built big for the jazzers in the twenties that had to have a big guitar, big sound to project. Yeah. Um, and it's a slightly stiffer construction than the dreadnought. Uh, so you, 
to me this sort of splits the difference between the dreadnought sound and the and the resonator sound, which is kind of interesting. It can go kind of metallic at the bridge, but yeah, it's a, this is a work of art. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, the thing I like about this guitar is you play it at the bridge and you play it at the neck and you're going to get a very different uh, kind of flavour. So it's much more um, what they call glassy, but if I get in here, it gets a bit raw and a bit more um, bit more direct. And, and the, the reason is that there's less overtones uh, playing at the bridge because there's more tension in the string at that point. But you get up here, so it's just got a lovely tone. It's got a very, um, if I just play a note. You know, that, that just, to me, that just sort of takes care of itself. What do you see when you're playing? What are you thinking? So that's, that's an interesting question because I have thought about that one. Um, so the way I play is I, I'm, I'm not very good at, uh, this will come as a great surprise, <laughs> <laughs> not very good at learning uh, compositions. For the classical guitar, I sit down and I really try and learn some of the, the, the classical pieces like Lyendus and things because they're, they're, they're just magnificent pieces of music and, and also for your, your technique, they're about, as, they're about as challenging as you're going to get. The way I like to play is is to play sort of um, in modes, so I'm playing in scales, and I try and when we do projects in different parts of the world, I, I kind of look for the music. I always look for the the music when we go mm -hmm. places and try and, and find out. So um, when we were doing Ethiopia, um, I'm a big fan of Ethiopian music. There's there's a great there's a great body of traditional and contemporary Ethiopian music. Um, a lot of jazz influence. There's a lot of jazz. Well, so Ethiopia is an interesting place because it's got a whole East meets West thing going on. So it's got it's got um, Arabic, African, and Western music, mm -hmm. but it but it's it creates its own thing. So in that there's a pentatonic in that in a lot of their folk music, which is kind of a which is a very very positive kind of little run. You know, it's just a nice, yeah. and so what it's what it's good for for someone like me is I, I can improvise around that, and so then to me it's about telling a story with music that doesn't really have a plot, but um, it has a a narrative thread. It has an arc, yeah. Mm -hmm. It has it has something about it that makes it not so much a beginning, middle, and an end. And I think this is where the folk tradition comes in, and where it interests me. So being Scottish, there's a big folk tradition is. I think folk music is cyclical because folk culture was, you know, society didn't change much for a long time. There's good and bad in that. Yeah. Um, but just the idea that you can get into a kind of a... And you get these pauses and you get these rests and that's like a phrase, right? It's like a phrase in a story. That's like someone telling a bit of a story, but then you... And so you're, you're just kind of mucking about in that mode. 
whereas a lot of Western music, um, especially jazz, and it's, 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 I get it, but there's a sophistication in their chord progressions mm -hmm. and the melody writing and how the chord relates to the melody and all these things that is about music composition, whereas this stuff is much more, it's simpler, but it's got its own complexity, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you can hear birds singing and you can hear kind of, yeah. Do you ever play for people or is it just for you? No, I, I, I don't. Uh, so, uh, I've thought about it. Um, I think that the, uh, the idea, now hang on, which one of these is? I'm gonna play one more scale on this. This is my favorite scale. But the question is um, playing out I, I've been a harpist, Rody, so I, I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of effort and sweat involved in it. Yeah. Maybe when when things open up a bit more, maybe I could find a corner of a street and and just <laughs> throw sit and a play. Hand down. I, I don't I don't I don't really care. Um, we were on holiday last year and I had the resonator and I was just playing it at night. We were just staying at this little kind of holiday park thing and, and the next day the neighbour said that was really nice and I was like oh sorry <laughs> so um, it would be nice to do something like that um, as long as it was kind of just no hassle yeah. you know I mean taking all this stuff out oh but, but this yeah. so this is a Japanese scale to completely change the direction <laughs> right I mean that, that that to me is just like wonderful the minor notes in there yeah well the um the thing that makes that scale is is the flat six and there's there's actually no third in it so it's a one one two four five flat six but where it gets it that kind of thing is you know it's just intriguing is there do you associate the music of countries with moods so yeah. you sit down and you're, you're in a certain kind of mood it's a mood that is only satisfied by this kind of country's music i i would say um absolutely um this is this is the um this is the arabic scale yeah you know and absolutely when you, and when you do the so another thing about guitar is i play in open tunings um, so when you do open tunings and you do certain scales, they're very sympathetic to that scale because the open strings are in the scale. So this is open D and it's very... Yeah, You know, I can, I can look a lot better than I am. <laughs> so, and, but, and, and the Arabic music has that phrasing. I love the music that's got expansion and contraction in it. That you can you can do a lot of kind of very fiddly stuff, and then you can take a break and, yeah. and just let a note hang, which is where the the tones of the guitars come in. Is where this is a good guitar. That's a great guitar, but it's it's got that. Um, I think because of this oak, it's got it's got real clarity, so the notes don't get uh, muddy, but. of a flub in there but who cares you know I just want to play that forever and yeah. then it's got so it's got a, it's got a lot of um, articulation to it but, but you can 
you can uh, create the size, you can get yeah. a nice big size of stuff. And then my two electrics are there. I just want to mention them quickly because they're, they're built by a, a local luthier, um, James Collins down in East Sussex. And James and I have become friends and I, I went and tried his guitars and I had him. He just built this one, which is based on a, roughly based on a Gibson uh, 335. But this one he made for me. So this was custom build. And um, there was a few things that I, that I wanted that you, you have to play guitar for a while before you know what you like. Yeah. So there's some things in here that if I say to you, you'll go, so what, right? So yeah. this is a one and three quarter inch nut. Typically, um, typically guitars will come with a one and eleven sixteenths. So there's one sixteenth of an inch <laughs> difference in the nut. Yeah. But it makes a big difference to the string spacing, and it makes a big difference to how I play because I, you know, I tend to play with a lot of open strings and things like that. And then I was able to specify the neck, the neck width, and the, and the neck depth because I like a chunky neck. I've, even though I've got small hands, I, I like a chunky neck. I don't, yeah. I don't uh, like thin necks, and a lot of guitars go with thin necks. And then I was able to, you know, specify the pickups and the hardware. And he's got this this lovely design detail where he does this sort of crescent moon. That's, that is a solid carve. So this starts off as a solid, um, a solid piece of um, maple with a spruce cap, and then he just carves it all out by hand. And I've got a book. He does a book and does documents it. But he's a real artist. You can see this. Oh, absolutely. See this this kind of curved string of it's going yeah. through the. So what he does is, um, the 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 fretboard's ebony, and then he'll cut it to that curve, and then he puts the maple stringer in it, and then he glues it back together. <laughs> and the detail. It's just it's just a beautiful, a beautiful piece. How long did it take him to make this? It took him about uh, it took him about three months. Wow. He, he didn't go fast, but you know. When you get to a point where you know what you like and you can have, I mean, this guitar, I think, is number 43, right? Wow. Gibson will put out, I don't know, tens of thousands of guitars this year. I was a big Gibson fan for a long time. Um, uh, Gibson Les Paul Gold Tops were my, were my thing. But when you get your own guitar that no one's had their hands on, and, you, and by this time you know what you like, it's wonderful. You you, yeah. you pay for it, but you don't ever sell it, and it's it's well in a, in a real sense, it's priceless because it's exactly tuned to what it's. It is, it is what you want. I mean, it's a it's a, in your needs. It's a fantastic guitar, and and this one is is every bit of sequel. This is another one that he made, and he just made this when I went to see him, and I played it for five minutes. And long story short, I ended up trading some some very sort of high end um, American guitars to get these two. But I was very happy with that because, you know, number forty-two and number forty-three. Yeah. And you know, the, the, it doesn't make them better guitars. It makes them better guitars for me. Yeah. It makes them uh, just bespoke. Well, thank you for sharing. Oh, it's pleasure. This this space with us. I I was just in the Tate, and one of the ex exhibitions I saw was artists' workshops. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and you yeah. you. You just get to understand a little bit more about a person when you see the space that it's deeply personal. So I thank you for yeah, inviting us yeah. in, but also it, it's eye-opening. So as we're wrapping up, tell me, you've got a whole collection of records and we've talked about how you sample some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to run through a few that are really super influential to me. I'll try and be quick. Um, Miles Davis on the corner. Mm -hmm. 
it's not one of his better known albums, but it's from 1972, and it's to me, it's it's just an amazing piece of music for a few reasons. One, he had a great band. They were doing kind of a I hate to say it's kind of a jazz rock crossover sound, but when Miles Davis did that, it it, it was still his sound. Right. Um, it's a very angular music, but what's interesting is a lot of it was done using tape loops. So it's a similar process to what I'm doing here. Um, it's just that they were doing it with tape and they were splicing bits together and they were doing a lot of takes and then they were just taking bits and putting this track with that track. And so it was built in the studio and it's but it's very improvisational sound, um, and it's just a, to me it's a great sort of um, reference point. It sounds like a sweet kind of spot for what you it, do. It, it really is. It really is. I I don't play trumpet like Miles Davis, but <laughs> the the principles behind it, the layers of the percussion mm. and the simple lines that repeat and the way that they work, the the sounds work off each other. Yeah, is superb. Um, Obviously, Blade Runner. Well, which th- this we'll is, probably talk about a little bit more in the rest of the interview. But movies have had yeah, a huge you influence. know, this is this is kind of top of the heap. I've been listening to this soundtrack. Uh, I don't. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about this film is that it sort of was reborn in 1990, as far as I'm concerned. And that yeah. was the year I started college, and I went to the Glasgow Film Theatre to see the director's cut of Blade Runner. Having seen it when it came out, right. with with uh, with Deckard's voiceover and all the rest. But as soon as the lights went down and you saw Los Angeles and you saw the flames coming out the yeah. coming out the thing and you heard Vangelis's kind of glissando that opens it up, it was I was like, wait a minute, yeah, I have not seen this film before because when someone's talking to you, telling you what the story is, they they're doing a lot of the work for you. You're kind of a passenger. This was just different. So so this is prized possession. Mm. Um, Stravinsky, uh, the Rite of Spring. Um, hundred year old piece of music that still just sounds off the charts, and a lot of this is about simple phrases that are that are layered up, passed between instruments. Um, I mean, it's done in in a in a magnificent way. Um, I I I try and get some of this, but th- this is a yeah, Rite of Spring, Stravinsky, very famous piece of music. When, yeah. the, when the Walt Disney Concert Hall opened in Los Angeles, I was there. That was their gala performance to open things. So it's a it's a very well known piece of music now. A hundred years ago, it started a riot at its premiere because it was just too <laughs> it was too nuts for people. They, yeah. they 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 just they they blew a fuse and they were throwing fruit at the dancers and <laughs> and uh, all the rest of it. And two more quickly: Enter the Dragon, Lelo Schifrin. Yeah. I mean, Lelo's Lelo Schifrin, Mission Impossible theme, Dirty Harry, yeah. Enter the Dragon. I, I've that that's another one that's been with me a long time. Um, this is an oddity that I'll go out on. Electronic music folk know this one. This is this is Walter Carlos, nay Wendy Carlos, um, interpreting Bach on monophonic Moog synthesizers. I love um, that that, uh, that picture. Oh, the, the the pictures. You know, this is a serious record, and they kind of went a wee bit tongue in cheek with it, which is which is cool. Um, it's a it's a beautiful piece of music to because I think the challenge when the electronic music was coming out was how do you how do you make it uh, complex how do you make it human how do you get some of that stuff that that that, that kind of comes out with good back performances yeah. and I challenge anyone to listen to this and not think this is a really fine really fine genuine piece of music this gives it kind of a pastiche vibe which which I I I I don't really dig but um. Uh, 
the, I mean, it's kind of interesting because the, the original Moogs were all built as furniture with the wood the wood frames and yeah. stuff like that. But Switched On Back is a great piece of music. So there's five uh, records. They're that, at the top they, of the they, list. They're on, they're on heavy rotation for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Francis, thank you again for, for letting us come in and invade your space. Mm, and pleasure. We're going to continue the conversation um, back in the office. Can we go for dinner? Yeah, let's do that first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for letting us go through that, Francis. It was, it was a blast to be able to see a little bit of your creative process. I, I forgot to ask while we were there, why plywood? Like the paintings that you're doing are all on plywood, not canvas. Is that a, I'm guessing that's a conscious decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things. It's three quarter inch ply. And then on top of that, there's just a bunch of layers of, you know, the gum tape that you use when you're doing like a watercolors or, or yeah. acrylic to stretch the paper so the paper doesn't buckle. And usually you put that around the four edges and that holds the paper um, so that when you apply paint, it doesn't buckle, right? I always loved painting in those, those edges. Yeah. Yeah, it's very me, right? Um, but I always remember spending more time up in the brown paper kind of drawing away and, and liking the texture of the brown paper. Um, so I liked it, but also um, a lot of the paintings um, I'll go in with a pen, you know, because I, I cut my teeth on drawing boards and I, and I do like that, I do like that combination of, of kind of rough pen and then, and then sort of precise pens, even if you're just sort of marking out an area or, you know, just giving it a little bit of um, precision. So you get that, that, that kind of like rough side and that precise side. And that's kind of the aesthetic. So you can't do that on canvas, right? It's, there's no tension for you to actually hold a ruler against it and right. draw these lines. You need that solid surface. Exactly. And the paint, you know, the, t the, the canvas soaks up the paint. So you're, it's not a surface that you would want to try and draw straight lines on, right? Um, so that was really it. Um, and then there was just sort of the expediency of being able to move them around, being able to buy them pretty cheaply and and just make them yeah and i kind of like that idea that you make the piece that you work on you make the you make the substrate yourself you know i i always when i used canvas i have used canvas i would always stretch it myself um and part of the reason for that is i like to work on the unfinished canvas as well that was kind of a, a francis bacon thing you know he would work on he would actually turn the canvas over and, and work on the bad side the bad side for him was the good side because yeah. it was just had more imperfections in it and more more a tooth you know that the paint would catch yeah so i, I kind of I kind of like taking that idea and then also i was i was always around plywood because my, my dad was in the building trade you know so it's there's a few it's that's a not that's not the reason but yeah. it's kind of like it's it's kind of a a little resonant point about it you know so you know we we talked about this a little bit um, as we were traveling back to the office, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, it, with things going increasingly digital, at the risk of sounding like <laughs> an Jonathan old- Jonathan Massey. <laughs> <laughs> at the risk of sounding like an old codger. <laughs> um, you know, it, with things going increasingly digital, uh, it just naturally, some of the hand skills are going to be lost. And there's a lot of, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like there's a lot of pros to doing some of the digital things. Um, but I've noticed when you've been working on projects here in the London office and you've been with, um, you know, some of the younger designers that they, ha they all have a notebook and they're also drawing. And what, what is the importance of continuing to have that tactile feel, similar to the way we talked about the guitar and a few yeah, other things, yeah. having that tactile feel 
versus the digital? Because you're also somebody who can appreciate the digital. We've done a bunch of digital projects with you, but there's, there's definitely, it's definitely different tools for a different narrative, it sounds like. I think that the, uh, there has to be something about holding a, like a tool that's designed to do just that job, right? So, um, you know, a mouse is a mouse is a wonderful design, right? It's probably the the mouse is probably going to be the thing that's remembered in five hundred years about yeah. about our time. Because look look at what they could do with like that finger, you yeah. know. Um, but that said, it's it's sort of yeah you you do your accounts, you send an email, you design. You, I, I like the tool that does the job that that you're that you're um, working on, and then I think very specifically the relationship between the hand and the eye and the brain is something that develops over time um, and drawing through the drawing through the um, drawing through the question you know so e even this morning um, you know working with uh, with Puna it was reminding me that when we were setting out site geometries you used to take a sheet of paper and draw your site geometries draw draw your your the principles of your site and then you would overlay that and then you sort of creating your own module and you're working to that he's in the computer and he's moving big pieces around it's, it's super impressive but when you're doing certain things where you want to say well here's a here's a geometric principle um it's almost a little bit like 2d cad was kind of an advantage for that you know I, yeah i was boring them all about how ucs alignments and stuff like that you know the the, the setting things out doesn't flow the same way, right? Uh, is it harder to see the relationships between things or understand them because you can mass move them? Oh, look, I, I, I certainly, um, I think when you're doing a certain, a, a certain point in design, I, I cannot argue with the, the, the ability for us to get in and show a client what the space sure. is like three-dimensionally and be able to move them through a space, be able to animate sequences, be able to actually um, create architectural media, which is more in line with the media that they consume in their lives, right? That makes a lot of sense to me that automatically they can connect because it's not alien. Whereas 2D drawings, you know, printouts, drawings, there's a, there's a, there's a knack to reading a plan, right? And if you don't have the training, you're going to be, you're going to be lost. Yeah. So I, I so I'm, I'm definitely a, a both and advocate, but I do think that you're brain in there for your own personal development um, benefits from doing that, doing, you know, making a mark on a piece of paper. It connects you to the, a lineage, you know, it connects yeah. you to sort of tradition and history. So I think it's a shame that that gets lost. Absolutely. You know, usually in, in the, the interviews and the profiles, we, we kind of encapsulate the question in different ways, but uh, I think because of the amount of time we've spent together, I can probably just ask you pretty bluntly, why are you an architect? Well, I'm an architect because there's, there's um, the, 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 the sort of fundamental way of practicing I, I really enjoy. Um, by contrast with, with painting and with music, which for me are kind of introspective and sort of insular and solo endeavors, um, Architecture is about collaboration. It's about uh, it's about teamwork, and it's about people with very different eyes on the same problem. You know, different uh, different levels of expertise, different areas of expertise, I should say. And um, 
and I just really enjoy it when everyone comes together focused on the solution and, and looking for those innovative ideas. Um, and I find I, I, get, I get better ideas from other people than I can come up with on my own in architecture. So um, that, that's, that's why I be an architect, I think. You know a little bit about everything. <laughs> uh, just enough to be dangerous. You seem to start at a different place, which is with the art, you know, and I remember the, you know, usually when we're in a kickoff meeting, we go through kind of the list of the requirements of whatever the project is and kind of whatever the design motivation is that the design director has. And you started off showing artwork that you, that the project, just an RFP had inspired in, in your thought process, which was an unusual place for me or a unique place for me to start from. Certainly as a creative director, it was, it was a great place to start from, but you're, you're, I mean, maybe in some ways you are your own client when it comes to some of the artwork, but your art is still something that not only ins is inspirational, but appears to be really key to the beginning of the creative process when you go to design a project, and then is something that you're not shy about, that's something that's in our presentations to clients and whatnot. So you have to remember that I studied at Glasgow School of Art and that was, um, you know, we were the architecture department doing a Glasgow University degree, but part of the art school culture and campus. And that was a great place to be, but, you know, because it was a very, very creative place. And we worked with artists and with music and with other things. I, I, I did, you know, as much stuff with the, with the art students as with the architecture students. So the idea of, of, of analysis and inspiration being parallel sort of interwoven processes is really important. I don't ignore the analysis, um, but the inspiration is something that I think you, you, want to, you want to take ownership of a project. That's how I do it. Other people do it different ways, but for me to, to take ownership and to put the effort in the, the projects need, that's how I do it. That's the, that's that's the, the process. That wasn't a thing I learned. That was just a thing that, that sort of I had to do and, and, and fight for, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you so much for letting us invade the office a little bit and, uh, and certainly invade your studio. Um, there is a ton of content from this episode. So we're going to list um, a couple of different links down below, including a link uh, to some of Francis's public work that's online. So if you want to learn more about it, you can go take a look at that. Thank you, Francis, for having this conversation with us. Thank you. And make sure to check out all the information below in the next episode of The Square.